<laughs> I'm ready. Be Mike, your sidekick. You ready? My, your sidekick is ready, yeah. Well, welcome back to Recommended Daily Dose. I'm Dr. Clinton Coleman along with my colleague, Dr. Sarad Sugar. We have an amazing guest today, Dr. Shanine Lalani. Now, she is literally on the front lines. Like, if there was a line, she'd be in front of it um, during this <laughs> COVID pandemic. She is a hospice and palliative care physician in NYC. And you may have seen her on NBC News, Fox 5, ABC News, making Dr. Siraj look bad. You got to set your oh. name up. No? <laughs> yeah, she gave me wrong for my money. No doubt right. about it. So welcome, Dr. Lalani. <laughs> How you doing? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I absolutely love your podcast. And, you know, I follow you on Instagram and I'm so excited to be here talking to you guys. Awesome. So what are you up to now? So I am currently at work. I am at my pop-up hospital in New York City. It's part of the HHC uh, New York City Health and Hospital Systems. And I am currently here as an internal medicine hospitalist and also as a palliative care doctor that they have hired. Um, and I do locums full time. So they have hired me as the locum doctor here. Right. What made you go into hospice palliative care? So, so, so I just want to talk about what palliative care and hospice sure. first is. So palliative care is a field in medicine that deals with anyone um, that has a serious chronic illness. So that includes, you know, cancer and stage heart disease, lung disease, dementia. Um, so anyone with a chronic illness. And my job as a palliative care doctor is to provide relief of any symptoms like pain or difficulty breathing and suffering. Um, and then my job is also to have goals of care conversations with patients and families. So, you know, getting to know the patient at a deeper level and based on what their goals and wishes are, giving recommendations and helping them make medical decisions. And then mostly providing support to um, patients and family. And then the hospice side of it is hospice is for patients that have a life expectancy of six months or less. And with that, my job is also to, you know, provide comfort, make sure they're comfortable, um, you know, symptom man management, and all of this works in a um, interdisciplinary uh, setting where it's not just me, but it's, you know, the nurse, the social worker, the chaplain, and we all work together for these chronic illness and end of life patients. Um, so, you know, there's, so, no, there's no doubt that this is incredibly important. And we've actually mm -hmm. had uh, one or two hospice docs on before, but you know, I, mm -hmm. I find it so important to reiterate what it is and you know what services they provide because I think I think you agree the general public still has some misconceptions about palliative care, hospice, and a Definitely. lot of patients will sometimes think, oh, you means you're giving up on me, right? That's, that's something exactly. that Clint and I have deal with all the time. You're calling hospice, mm -hmm. why? You, know, you don't care about me. You're giving up on me, and so what? What do we tell people, or what do we tell patients about that? So I think every time a palliative care doctor is consulted, the first thing patients think of is hospice. And right. that's not true. You know, palliative care is not just hospice. It's for anyone that has a chronic illness. And our job is to help with any symptoms they might be having. And most importantly, start those goals of care conversations early. early so start right. having open conversations about getting to know the patient, about what is it that, you know, it life will really look like in the future. 
and kind of getting to know them at a deeper level. And that takes time. And that's why usually palliative care doctors are consulted early on in the disease progression. So we get to know them and help them make medical decisions based on what their goals and wishes are. Um, so, you know, it's not giving up. It's actually increasing the time you have and making sure that you're spending quality time with your family and spending quality time with yourself um, instead of, you know, giving up, as people say. Yeah, and I, I think we do such a poor job overall as physicians because I have patients who are in the emergency room and you're just asking them what their advanced directives are and they're like, why mm -hmm. are you asking me that? But those conversations exactly. should be started in like the doctor's office as far as living will. It shouldn't be wait, you know, to the last minute as far as decision making. Um, mm -hmm. Do you see some of those challenges? Like, what, what are the biggest challenges you see, um, I guess, before this pandemic, which is a whole different animal, but mm -hmm. as far as um, communicating end-of-life issues with family members? Mm -hmm. So I think the biggest challenge is that we are involved too late on. Right. <laughs> and, and, and that's hard because then a lot of these conversations we're having is with family members when patients are unable to speak and be part of the conversation. So one thing I always suggest for physicians and even patients to do is just to even have a healthcare proxy form. You know, starting with something so basic is is the most important part of initiating a conversation. So a healthcare proxy form is a form where you assign an agent, someone in your life, whether it is your spouse or your sibling or your children, one or two people that in the event, if you are no longer able to speak, who should we contact to make medical decisions for you? And it's medical decisions, not you know financial decisions or anything like that, just medical decisions. And that is just a great way to start the conversation because you know the rest of the conversation, whether it is regarding CPR or whether you want to go naturally or do you want to be intubated, those are difficult conversations and we understand that. And yeah. it takes time to titrate up to that level sometimes. But just even starting with the healthcare proxy form that, hey, who should we contact if you are unable to speak is a good gateway right. into other conversations. That's excellent. You know, I have a, a question. You know, you're in New York. We're in northern New Jersey. We're in the tri-state. Mm -hmm. We treat patients of a wide variety of backgrounds, caste, mm -hmm. color, creed, et cetera. So, you know, I, I run into difficulty. I mean, both Clinton and I deal with a lot of chronically ill patients, both as infectious disease and, and nephrology. Right. You know, you're taking care of a multitude of cultures and religions. So someone might say, oh, I'm Muslim or I'm Jewish, I'm Christian, I'm Hindu. You know, in our, our religions, we don't believe in giving up. We don't believe in this. So how, so how do you reconcile um, people's cultural and religious beliefs in talking about end-of-life care? So I find this to be not only incredibly important, but it's also, I don't want to say difficult, but it, it does present itself often. You know, and then we kind of, um, as physicians, mm -hmm. are not always trained. Okay, what are the intricacies of different religions and cultures, even, um, and what they have, they might have to say about end-of-life care or what you can and can't do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so that is difficult because, especially in New York City, where we're, you know, the hospitals in New York City are literally the melting pot, yeah. and we're seeing, you know different cultural backgrounds, like, for example, you know, what we see with some Chinese cultures where the, the patient does relies heavily on um, 
the eldest in the family to make some medical decisions or certain cultures, like whether it is the Jewish culture, um, where, you know, they don't believe in, in withdrawing care or anything like that. But a lot of it is just training yourself to, you know, change your language and have a more nuanced conversation. Right. So, for example, we never say things like we're withdrawing care because that in some cultures is considered a negative thing right. because we're not Tabula, withdrawing right. care. Right. We're still taking care of the patient, but it's in a different manner. We're taking care of the patient by focusing more on comfort and making sure they're comfortable. So a lot of you know our training, especially being trained at NYU and getting my training at Bellevue for parts of my rotation was learning how to use a different language when it comes to different cultures to kind of help them explain more um, mm. of what is really going on with a patient. And this is when the interdisciplinary team comes in, you know, so, so this is why it's not just me. Um, we have a we had a chaplain at Bellevue who was excellent, who was trained further in having these religious conversations with patients. And so, if it's not just me and I'm coming in with someone that has, you know, a very solid background um, in dealing with patients with di different religious background, that right. also helps the conversation. And then we have social workers that are trained in having conversations with certain populations, whether it is the LGBTQ population or whether it is um, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. So having that team approach is definitely beneficial. But you're right, it, it is very difficult. But Clinton and I have talked about, you know, in, in different minorities in medicine, underrepresented, obviously mm -hmm. Asians are probably overrepresented. Do you find that having a background that you may have and you can tell us about your background that you're better able to relate to patients um, or do you find that it helps you to relate to patients of a wide and varied background? Yeah, so I my background is I'm Indian. I was actually born in India and I moved here when I was 10 years old. That's right, Yay. yeah. <laughs> Brown power. Um, and yeah, just having that background and knowing how important how family dynamics come into right. play in our culture is just so important. And that's why, you know, I always emphasize that a palliative care doctor is in conjunction with the primary team. We're never just alone. And so right. a lot of times we are enlisting help of physicians from different backgrounds, you know, whether the physician has a is is a Chinese background or a Korean background or a Japanese background and, and just learning the nuances of um, where they come from and how patients' decisions are affected by where they come from. You know, yeah. for example, I had a Buddhist patient and their end of life care is so different than, you know, having, for example, a Native American patient. And mm -hmm. when I've done locums all over the country and I've, you know, taken care of patients end of life that are from Native American background and having someone with me that understands the nuances of their culture is just so important because there's no way I would know what to do. You have a, a unique outlook during this this COVID pandemic. We're seeing other places like Texas and Florida, mm -hmm. California with spikes. Now we all live through this. Um, mm -hmm. How is your perspective as a palliative care physician dealing with, I guess, the volume mm -hmm. of really sick people? Um, you yeah. know, we had whole committees uh, in regards mm -hmm. to you know end of life care and resources and things like that. Mm -hmm. So what was your experience like as a palliative care physician? Yeah. So, you know, what we went through here in our city and in, in mm -hmm. where you guys are in Jersey, it was just 
nothing we could have ever imagined. Just the sheer volume of patients that were dying. You know, as a hospitalist, I had so many patients die. Um, And as a palliative care doctor, it was just so difficult. I would say the hardest part for me was to see that family members could not visit their dying loved ones. And a lot of what we did as the palliative care and hospice team is speak to family members about what was going on, explaining to them, you know, where in the process the patient is. And the hardest part was, you know, breaking bad news, telling these family members that the patient has passed away and the family members couldn't visit their loved ones. And that, you know, palliative care is a very touchy-feely field. Um, We're all about, you know, end-of-life care, being around your family, being around your loved ones, and to not be able to offer that um, for the patient and the family was definitely the most difficult part. Um, What was your guidance? You know what, I I agree. Yeah. No, I agree because we kind of got, you know, I mean, I was there trying to do clinical trials and, and, and Mm -hmm. had... And, you know, and make sure Clinton wasn't messing up, uh, you know, taking care of his kidney issues. But, you know, yeah. we all we all had to pitch in and do family contacts and, and, exactly. and updates. And, you know, there's plenty of times where I was there, just like I'm sure you were, uh, FaceTiming mm-hmm. uh, with family, saying goodbye. Right. Time with a patient right before he was intubated. Uh, yeah. Fully knowing at that point that there was a good chance he would never come off. And he did succumb to his mm-hmm. disease. Or he said goodbye to his kids, you know, or I'll be right back. Dad, I'll be right back. Mm-hmm. Um I FaceTimed with a uh, um, an Indian uh, grandmother to their children, and you know, in my mind, they're saying goodbye, Dadima, which means grandmother. And I'm thinking yeah. to myself, that's what my kid would call my mom. Exactly. So it really hit yeah. home. So, but you're right. That is a very non-natural, unnatural way of having people saying goodbye and communicating, right? I mean, FaceTime or right. Skype, whatever it might be. I mean, um, yeah. How did you humanize that? Because I felt very. I tried, I thought that we, and it wasn't just me, it was obviously a lot of times the nurses, all doctors pitching in, um, yeah. but every day we were trying to do our best, but it felt almost inhumane, or not inhumane, but it, it didn't feel natural. Unnatural. It was callous. Yeah. 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 yeah, no, I think one of the most beautiful things, one of the most beautiful, thing, beautiful things I saw was that the nurses, the techs, yes. the doctors, NPCPAs, we all banded together during this time and provided palliative care to these patients, mm. even if no one was a palliative care doctor, you know, everyone was assisting, like you said, with FaceTime, being next to the patient or being even next to the patient's room. The mm. challenging part was this fear that this patient has COVID and we had to, you know, do our best to be next to the patient and, you know, hold their hand, but at the same time, also be aware that our safety is also important. Um, and so dealing with that was also a difficult part for me because there was this constant yeah. fear in the back of my head that, that I'm spending a lot of time, time in this patient's room holding his hand and being there for him. But at the same time, back of my head, I was constantly thinking, okay, I need to be careful. You know, I have to right. make sure there's no break in my skin. I have my full PPE on. Yeah, of course. And yeah, so, you had you had those lines in your face, I'm sure, from the N95 mask. It was almost like a badge yes, of honor, right? We, horrible. Yeah. I had skin hair breakdown because in yeah. the beginning, we were wearing them the entire day. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, I self-quarantined at home. I mean, Clinton did mm-hmm. the same thing. You know, you don't want to bring it home to your kids, to your wife. Exactly. I felt like as time went on, you kind of got used to it, and you get exactly. not more cavalier, but you weren't so fearful. But at the beginning, it was like, gee, I'm seeing 30, 40, 50 patients a day, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, the anesthesiologists were intubating the patients. The critical care docs were putting in lines. We're there. Yeah. History is talking to patients. So you're right up in their face. But I did feel over time, 
you kind of got comfortable and realized that, hey, this is my job. Definitely. And once we didn't all as, as healthcare workers uh, succumb, uh, although we know that certain ones did, uh, but in general, we knew that PPE works very well. Um, I think we felt a little bit more comfortable, but it was still, like you said, a solidarity, not just all doctors, but doctors, nurses, techs, mm-hmm. EMTs, ER docs, critical care docs, palliative care docs. It was really like you have a singular focus that you're just working on. Exactly. We all kind of dip our toes in the palliative care arena as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that we yeah. can do, you can do, but you know, we, we had to do it, but you know, we were forced I know. to know. Yeah. And, and it was just so beautiful to see. Yeah, I think the, um, not only was it the volume that was hard to deal with, mm-hmm. but it was the like the age difference, right? So we were, right. we, initially we thought 65 older and you had to be obese and diabetic and hypertensive. Right. But you'd see 30 year olds, 40 year olds with right. no medical history, you know, with kids. And it, it was, mm-hmm. I think that, w- that, was that was more depressing than anything mm-hmm. else. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm sure you guys dealt with that too. Yeah, you know, those conversations were definitely the hardest ones to have with the family members, with the children. You know, a lot of the conversations I had to have was with patients, family, like patients' wife or patients' husband and patients' children and and family constantly asking me, oh, um, how do we talk to our children about this? How do we tell our family members about this? and and children, you know, sometimes I would have to talk to children on the phone just oh, because yeah. it was just so much to handle for, you know, their spouse yeah. and children asking me, "Can I come see my dad? Can I see come see my mom?" And it was just so heartbreaking to say, "No, I'm sorry for your protection. You can't come see your parent." You know, so it was just overall, it was just so emotionally challenging. Mm-hmm. <sighs> You know? Yeah, because you're right. We're used to, and you don't want to sound cold, but we're used to having 85-year-old, 90-year-old patients pass mm-hmm. away, et cetera. But it's just very unnatural to have a mid-40s with young mm-hmm. children in their 40s. They had risk factors, obesity, diabetes, but you know nothing out of the ordinary that a lot of Americans experience. Um, it happened so quickly and so fast, the acuity and the volume. It's almost like a tidal wave you know, that came mm-hmm. in, and then all of a sudden it receded. Now we are, uh, mm-hmm. well, now I got a puppy and I'm, that's why I was late because I was playing with my puppy before I <laughs> came today mm-hmm. so now things have calmed down but we're waiting to see what happens uh in this you know the rest of the summer and the fall right I mean I don't know any thoughts have you, have you had any uh I mean I you know as infectious disease we have our own thoughts but I mean is, is there any yeah. insight you, you see I mean do you I mean things are opening up in New York I know you live in Williamsburg but what do you mm-hmm. see going on now are people kind of have you know had it with quarantine do you think that people have quarantine fatigue and just are giving yeah, up. I mean, on I think social- definitely people have quarantine fatigue. You know, yeah. I think people are starting to go out, but we are in phase two, so people are allowed to be outside with proper, you know, masks on and maintain proper distance. But one of the things we're actually seeing at my current pop up hospital is mm-hmm. the social fallout from all of this. A lot of patients at my current facility are ones that are now homeless that were, you know, very sick for a very long time and lost a spouse that was the breadwinner and now they need placement. Mm. All these placement like nursing homes have backed up because yeah. of the amount of people that have gone into it just because of a lot of, you know, spouses being lost. Um, a lot of elderly patients are starting to be more depressed because they've kind of lost their autonomy. Um, mm. And a lot of a lot of patients that we're seeing at our current hospital are homeless. And that is one of the social fallouts we are seeing from this 
disease uh, that, you know, the financial hits some people have taken also some yes. and just losing a family member that was a breadwinner. Um, and that's happened a lot, especially with the elderly population. Are you guys seeing these fallouts at your? No, I think it's family? really important that you mentioned it. I mean, uh, you know, we talk about deaths and morbidity and mortality, but you're right. The psychological, the psychosocial, the socioeconomic mm -hmm. fallouts are, make the impact of COVID-19 even greater. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, we're seeing it or, or you're seeing it in people who are, you know, refusing to come in for health care. So maybe there are their diabetes is out of control or they're dying of heart attacks at home or strokes or, mm -hmm. you know, but I think the psychological damage is certainly uh, significant, not just in healthcare workers, but in people in general. Yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit because not only are you on the front lines of COVID, you're on the front lines of, you know, social, socially active and responsible, uh, mm -hmm. this, this wave. Um, mm -hmm. so you remember a wise woman once told LeBron James to shut up and dribble. Do you think physicians <laughs> can still be Should activists? Stay in your lane. Yeah, yeah, stay in your lane. Can you, can you, do you think physicians can be mm -hmm. activists when it comes to social issues? Yeah, I mean, I think as physicians, we are taught to, you know, do no harm. And when we start seeing harm happening, I think it is our um, job to speak up and contribute to the movement. Yeah. And it can be in any way, just treating patients or having these conversations with patients. Or at, We already saw with COVID the health disparities, and that was a huge topic right. that everyone was discussing. So, you know, I know people often say that, oh, you have to stay in your lane. But when people start dying, it is our lane, you sure. know. Or even beyond that, I think we, you know, we're all minority physicians, mm -hmm. and I'm sure we all experience racism, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you experience sexism and ageism and all mm -hmm. that things that, you know, it's, it's different, I'm sure, in this metropolitan area, but are there some instances where you experience these things? Yeah, I mean, I think being brown, you, and being a female, I, I think I experience more microaggressions, right. especially mm -hmm. when I travel to other cities outside of New York, um, in middle America sometimes. Um, but as a female, I experience sexism in medicine all the time. You know, it, it's just being a female, younger physician, sometimes patients and people treat you differently. Right. Like, we already know of the income disparities. You know, women physicians tend to make less and there's studies mm -hmm. that show that. Um, but not just that, just a lot of, you know, micro sexism, like patients being like, oh, hey, sweetie. Or, or where, when's the doctor like, coming in? Yeah. Yeah. When's the doctor coming in? Or where did you go to medical school? Or they assume you're you know? a nurse, right? Or something else, right? Yeah. Right. And nothing wrong with, you know, of course not. Of course not. Nurse, why, why should we love that our be? nurses. Yeah. <laughs> but just, you know, I don't think patients would be calling sweetie to a older male gentleman. You know, it depends. You'd be surprised. Usually, a lot of patients call no, Dr. Coleman sweetie. I get the sweetie. He, he looks so good. Yeah, he looks so oh, good. Oh, you get the sweetie. Get the sweetie. <laughs> they call me sir. I don't know. Maybe it's just the way I, you know, my, my persona that I come across is very confident. But Coleman, he gets a right. sweetie. But you, yeah. you're sorry, like this, the, the microaggression, the, the casual racism, like, you know, mm -hmm. that. I, I, it, it's hard to explain that to people who don't appreciate it because it's not like overt racism but it's still wrong right. right and i think we may be used to it you know how many times someone's asked me to take away a tray or transport some someone down the hall because they mm -hmm. thought i was you know someone else working at the hospital mm -hmm. out of position but i think that takes right. its toll but um you know I, I guess outside of treating patients 
you know, equitably, are there anything, any things that we can do as physicians, um, I guess, outside of medicine to make those, those experiences known? Um, I think just speaking up about them in non-medical settings right. and, and, you know, just kind of lending our voice to everything that's been going on is just so important as a civilian and not just a physician. You know, just having open conversations with our own families and our own friends. And, 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 and I always feel like these changes don't have to be huge. They right. can start off small in our own, you know, friend and family settings. Right. And it doesn't have to be Al Sharpton. It can be Dr. Siraj. It can, you know, it doesn't have to right. be. It can, it, right. Exactly. It doesn't have to be Al Sharpton. You know, <laughs> since we both have similar backgrounds, we know in India, for instance, I mean, you know, you can't paint a picture of... Uh, Indians in one uh, paintbrush, right? There is racism within right. India of, of North. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, that's a whole show in of itself. So I think exactly. everyone has to kind of look inward, right? And kind of say, hey, exactly. you know, there may be some racism in my own culture, even though I'm a minority. We, you know, not all minorities love other minorities, right? I mean, that, or at least mm -hmm. historically. So we know that there's a lot of work to do. It's not just a white and black issue, white, mm -hmm. black and brown issue. It's within each, um, within each population. I think we have to kind of look inward and say, you know what, there may have been some some notions, preconceived notions and things that have gone from generation to generation that need to stop it. Clint and I have talked about before that, you know, we should not stay in our lane because racism is a public health issue, right? And so as infectious exactly. disease, I mean, that's what we do, public health. I mean, so you can, I know a lot of doctors might say, like, we have enough on our plate, you know, and now you're adding on that we have to discuss racial issues with patients. But I mean, I think it is, like you said, I mean, do no harm, but we have to not just not do no harm, we have to do good. And, and, and if we look at racism, uh, as a public health issue, just to look at gun violence and other issues, then we realize, hey, it's important to not just address it, but, you know, go out and be very vocal about it, you know. Definitely. Social media or whatever, in, 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 in the news or whatever we can do to really bring light that, hey, we need to be agents mm -hmm. of change. You like that, Clinton? Agents of change? Agents of change. That sounds like the title. Agents of change. I don't know. That sounds like a band. That sounds like a band. Maybe I, we'll, we'll keep that for something else. But yeah. No, definitely. And I think now <laughs> more than ever, social media has just become so common for physicians to use. I actually just started my doctor account about a month and a half ago because I was someone that, you know, believed that social media, too much of social media is not good for you. Right. You know, there's studies that show that. And, um, but but it has become a become a way we connect with people, especially during this pandemic where we can't yeah, sure. go outside. And, and and that was one of the big reasons. I mean, there's been such a bump in physician accounts, mine being one of them, you know, and because um, I, I think a lot of physicians started feeling like, OK, this is our time to speak up, especially with the whole COVID situation that's happening um, and lend our voice to whatever that is going on, because it's important. And I, and I think it's really important, I admire you two both for what you do, is to lend our voices to the social issues that don't necessarily affect us directly, right? So, mm -hmm. for example, Black Lives Matter is, is important to me. I'm mm -hmm. sure it's important to you, but I right. think, you know, we're obligated to speak out on all issues, whether they affect black, brown, white, purple, you mm -hmm. know, gay, bisexual people, mm -hmm. regardless of, of the case. So. You know, anytime someone is suffering, I think it's all our responsibility to speak up for those those people. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. Now, what's what's next for you besides uh, pop up uh, hospitals and saving lives? It's a lot of busy yeah. place. What else? I mean, I know you're doing a lot with media, so tell us a little bit about that um, because we yes. both do media as well. So it'd be very interesting mm -hmm. to see what you're doing and what we could do better. How about that? 
Mm-hmm. You can do better. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm actually, I've been at this facility for a couple of months and, and mm-hmm. depending on how long it's going to remain open, I've been working almost every day here. I've been having, yeah. I think I have about five or six days off a month. The majority of the time I am here um, just because of the sheer need that they have. Um, and then after I'm done with this assignment, I feel like I need a little break and take some time off because I feel so exhausted. Sure. <laughs> I don't know how you guys feel. I know we're not allowed to travel and I wish we could travel a little bit more. Um, but I am just so tired. I feel like I've been going nonstop when things were really bad. I was in the midst of it. And now I'm at this pop-up hospital and I feel like I've been going nonstop. And so it's just so How does it work with these assignments though? With, with locum. Yeah. So you have I mean, you you're born in Texas, right? In Dallas? Yeah. Uh, you're not a 49ers fan. I'm sorry, a, a Dallas Cowboys fan, I hope. Oh not really, I'm no. from DC, so I'll leave it at that. I'm okay. from Maryland right outside. So you <laughs> I support. So but that aside, um, but you live in New York now? You live in Manhattan. You live in yes, Williamsburg? Yes, I, I moved to New York 10 years yeah. ago from medical school. I went to Toro. Yeah. And then I did my residency right after at New York City Health and Hospitals in, in Williamsburg area. Right. Um, and then I went to NYU for palliative care fellowship. And then right after that, I started doing locums. I yes. wanted to take some time to travel. Um, you know, I didn't really have a lot of money growing up. And so right after fellowship... I wanted to work a little bit and take some, you know, whatever money I made, I wanted to go towards my loans and take yeah. some time to travel um, leisurely. And so, I, so locums was perfect because as a locum doctor, you have short contracts um, and you can make your schedule. And so I focused mostly on rural medicine where I would go to rural areas like oh, Ozark, right? Missouri, yeah, or, you know, upstate, upstate, like Corning, New York, mm-hmm. um, where there's a sheer shortage of doctors. And so I could, you know, practice hospitalist and palliative care, or sometimes even Indian reservations. Mm-hmm. Um, so that 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 was something I genuinely enjoyed, um, practicing in rural That's areas. That's interesting, because I found, like, most, most younger, because you're younger mm-hmm. than us, this is may say, I want to be in a city, I want to be more urban area or suburban area. But you were fine going to like very, very rural areas and practicing there. Yeah, you enjoyed so New York that. City. Yeah, I enjoyed it because New York City was my base. So I would go Got for it. a week there, and then I would come. I would have a week off, and I would come back to New York City. So I felt like it let me enjoy yeah. New York City even more. Um, and then yeah, also gave yeah. me kind of like an insight onto all these rural areas where there's a, a lot. There's a lot of shortage of doctors. You know, mm-hmm. I know a lot of doctors go internationally, but our country itself has a huge shortage in some areas. So, yeah, you know, I've done yeah. some medical missions, and people like to say, "I'm going here, I'm going to Africa, I'm going to some mm-hmm. undeserved area in South America." But you're right; you look in our own backyard, right? And you would just look uh, exactly, and there's plenty of need here that still needs to be uh, filled. But so, are you planning to make a whole? career because I know that we've talked to some physicians who you know really their plan is not to do what Coleman and I do which is private practice and it has mm-hmm. both benefits and believe me negatives um, right but rather do locum so they can have that freedom and that flexibility right. in their schedule is that what you want you, you do most know, locums yeah. do that long term or it's unclear I, I guess depends on the I think to you. it's unclear it depends yeah. um I don't have children right now but I know once I have children it will be hard for me to just go away for two weeks and then sure. you know but I know some locum doctors like one of them that I'm working with right now 
bring their children along with them. Mm. Um, but I'm not exactly sure. But for right now, it does give me the opportunity to make my own schedule and get involved in other aspects of medicine or, you know, get involved in different hobbies um, and, and not just make medicine my all my life. <laughs> now, now, Dr. Siraj, if you haven't, if you can't tell, is a little culturally impaired. So part <laughs> of... Um, I wanted to come up with a new segment where you make recommendations based on any music you're listening to or shows you're mm -hmm. watching just to make him or books you're reading just to make him a little more hip. You can tell by his shirt. Look, he has a collar out, taco meat showing. Mm -hmm. First of all, it's a beautiful shirt. Yeah. You see all these books behind me? You see all these diplomas and books behind me? It's very varied. But we're not talking about me, so I digress. Right, Tell so us what's going on. Right. What are you reading this summer? Let's start with listening that. To. Okay. So I would say my one of the books I recently read um, not that long ago was a book called Sapiens. I don't ah, know if I love it. that. Oh, God. I, I have read it. I have read it. He talks about this book like it's... Uh... See? No, it I have read it. Okay. <laughs> and Coleman doesn't even know what it, what it means. It means I, yeah, it's a fantastic book. But go ahead, give us a little review about that because I love it. It's fantastic. So basically, it's the history of human life, and I like books like that. And I think that's one of yeah. the biggest reasons I went into palliative care and hospice. It kind of just gives you a, you know, a whole um, meaning of life. You know, like, and and it and it describes you know how we started a civilization, why humans do what they do. And it's just so beautifully written. It's by Yuval Nohari. And it is my favorite book of all time. Anytime wow. someone asks me for a book recommendation, I definitely say you have to read Sapiens. I, you know, he wrote another one, that, I think, too. He wrote a sequel to that, uh, which I have yeah, not read. Yeah, yeah, I think Homo good. Diaz. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think any book that kind of, you know, changes the way you think about life and just humans in general is always interesting to me. Um. Any music? What about, have you read any book, any music? Coleman doesn't I, read, unfortunately. He doesn't read much. Audio book, <laughs> audio book, audio book. He can't really offer us anything uh, that, of any substance there. Reading is the soul of uh, 1990s. Come on, they, they He does have a very format. good tennis shoe uh, collection, though. Tennis shoe. Very good tennis shoe. Music. So I really like house music. Basketball like shoes, fine. Whatever, basketball shoes, tennis shoes. I'm sorry, can you repeat that? He's sure. So I really like house and trance music. So that's kind of like the music genre. Recently, this band I've been listening to is called Rufus De Soul, and they have really good house music. I don't know if you're into house music. So Coleman's house actually, I got Coleman into Bhangra, you know, and he is just, oh, okay. uh, yeah, he is like, this guy can Bhangra like no one, no one knows, even better than a Punjabi, I'm a Punjabi, so even better than I can, so. Oh, okay. uh, well, you rave, you rave from time to time, right? I uh, do I read? Yeah, um, yeah I, I slowed down now that now that I'm a little older. I slowed down. Great. We wanted to, we just wanted to thank you. This has been very oh, insightful. But before we go, where can people find you and follow you and all that stuff? Sure. So um, you can follow me on my Instagram account. It's Dr. Lalani. So D R. Lalani. L A L A N I. Um, and then you can also add me on LinkedIn at Shanine Lalani. Awesome. So those are the places. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure talking to both of you. Complete pleasure. We really appreciate the insight you yeah. provided. Uh, you know, we try to make joke around and be light, but you know, this yeah. is a, a, a difficult topic and a serious topic, a topic that needs to be discussed. And we really appreciate Definitely. you your expertise and, uh, you know, enlightening all of us, but still in a very entertaining way. So we appreciate it very much. 
Uh, I'm still a little hurt you made fun of my music choices, but you know what? Uh, we <laughs> always appreciate our listeners out there. Recommend Daily Dose. Find us on uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Until next time, I'm Dr. Stuart Sugger with my esteemed co-host, Clinton Coleman. Be well. <laughs>